Well, good morning. I thought we didn't do enough music, so we're going to do some more if you're fun. Just no, I'm uh, just kidding. But I want to welcome you. If you're our guest, my name is Greg Harris. I am the uh, senior pastor here at Olive Branch. And uh, what some of you guys may not know is years and years ago, I was actually the youth pastor here at Olive Branch. And uh, back at the beginning of the, way, way back, I mean, I'm talking like beginning of the 2000s. Um, yeah, yeah, way back, right? The, uh, the, uh, <laughs> I, I used to, we used to take the students up to this place called Spirit West Coast. Anybody remember Spirit West Coast? It was like this giant Christian festival of music and stuff. And we were always parked way out in the boonies. Like we had to camp out in the middle of nowhere. And one year while we're sitting there, it's actually my first year. I was, I brought my guitar and I was goofing around making up all these songs and having fun with these guys. And I don't know, if, is this thing on? Can you hear this thing yet? Yeah. So anyway, and uh, that's what happens when I can't hear it. But um Sitting around this campfire, we had one of my friends there. He was a youth leader named Cody Jones. And Cody is just this big, burly guy. He, uh, he was actually like the center of Norco High, Norco High's football team. And it was back when football in Norco was like the thing. They were like the top in, in, in the state and things like that. And so Cody was, you know, a big, hefty guy. We had a couple other students around. And he had mentioned randomly, like, hey, did you notice the signs in the park? I'm like, no, what did they say? He's like, they say, like, beware of mountain lions. Do you think there are mountain lions around here? I'm like, I don't know. But I could sing a song about it. And he's like, what? And I, so I literally grabbed my guitar and I'm like, I, I did my good youth pastor thing. I turned my hat around. Fire's burning. I lean close and I go... By the way, I make up songs all the time with my kids. This is not new. I see a mountain lion running in the forest. Running, running, running after you. You are running oh so fast. He will catch you in the grass. Soon you will be something he will chew. And so I literally sing this song for 45 minutes. Don't go in the woods alone, the lion's chewing on your bones. You know this whole nasty song about mountain lions. Well, I get done after 45 minutes and Cody is sitting across from me. I'm like, that was funny. And he's like, that was not funny. I'm like, what do you mean it's not funny? The kids are like, uh, I'm like, what's that? I'm like totally like out. I'm like, what's going on? They're like, no, I'm scared. And they, like big burly Cody wouldn't, had to go to the bathroom. He wouldn't get up and go from the, in the fire pit. And I'm like, ah, get out of here. So he takes one of the students and I do what a good youth pastor does. I hide in the shadows. And so I sneak away behind, slip away in the shadows and I wait, watch for him to come out of the restroom area. And as he's coming out, I take off as fast as I can. I mean, I'm hauling, I'm just running. And then I jump and I come up to him and he doesn't see me. And I scratch him on the back and go, Rawr! and he's like, he just falls over panicked. And I'm like, I'm just laughing. And he hated my guts after that. But I bring up this silly story because even though you and I, as we found out at Easter, are fenced in by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we discuss the idea that God has overcome the demonic beings. He has overcome the angelic beings that are against us and against the world. In his resurrection, he has overpowered this situation. Even though we have protection by the presence of his spirit, even though we live in a world in which these beings exist, 
and God has done his work, we still need to be careful. We need to beware. We can't just simply run around thinking, ah, no big deal. We talked last week that we're in a spiritual battle, that these beings exist. And I can't get into all the details again and all the arguments for why and what they're like and how many there are. That was last week's message and the week before. And I would advise you grab our app on, on, on your phone or or go onto the website and get our podcast. Go back and look at those two things because they're important to address this one question. It's like, we're going to talk about demons? This is weird. But my, my point for us as Christians and my point for us in this room today is we need to beware. And the Bible says there is one who is prowling around like a roaring lion looking to, for someone to devour. And that's the devil. And so, yeah. I see a mountain lion. Yeah, he's running in the forest. He's looking out. He's ready to find us. There is a sense that we need to beware and be ready. And that's what we're going to talk because I want us to be ready for the schemes of the devil, as the Bible puts it. The, the weaponry that the demonic world uses against humanity and primarily against Christians and, and in order to keep us from God. And their goal in this is indeed, their, their job is to keep you from really knowing God. Their, their goal is to keep you from intimacy with Christ. And they're going to use these four different weaponry in our lives to challenge us and to, and, to, and to do all kinds of things. So let's get into this as I lay out these four different weapons. The first weapon is the obvious one that many of us know about. It's called temptation. So if you got your outline, you can write down temptation. But if you got your Bible, we're going to look at the primary location where we're taught probably the most about temptation, and that is in Jesus' temptations that are in Matthew chapter 4. So if you want to grab a Bible and open up, we'll examine this text and kind of pull a couple of things out of this for the first two weapons, and then we'll kind of move on from there. But if you get that, open up to Matthew chapter 4, and uh, if you need a Bible, they're provided under seats, and they're on page 809, and you can pull it out and join us. But Jesus has just been baptized, and now he's, the, the, he's been blessed by God with the presence of the Spirit. The Father has declared that this is his beloved Son, whom he's well pleased, and then it picks up in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I always thought that was like, well, duh, right? You fast 40 days and 40 nights, you tell me you're not going to be hungry. Why do we need to write that down? And what I realize is that this is, is pinpointing something. Actually, when you get past about a week of fasting, something begins to occur. There, you get to this place where your body's not acting in hunger pains anymore. You kind of can keep going and it really doesn't cause you any problems. And then out of nowhere, your body starts screaming at you. It'll just be like, I'm hungry. Stop this fasting thing. So now that Jesus has gone 40 days, he's at this point where his body is screaming at him to eat. And, and so he's at his weak point here. And it's that weak point, I believe, that this text is telling us that it says, verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, hey, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So uh, odd, odd situation again, like why is the devil tempting Jesus to turn, bread, turn stones into bread? What's the big deal about this? And it's a challenge of his actual um, authority. He's saying, so you think you're the son of God, huh? Well, then, then show me, turn these stones into bread and eat, feed yourself, man. Come on, you're hungry. And this first temptation is about one idea. It is, the, it is the enemy's attempt to make you and I supply for us our own needs and our own wants in our own ways. Our own needs and our own wants in our own ways. This is a primary attack I believe the majority of humanity feels is that you and I have natural desires. We have natural wants. We have natural needs. 
And that not all of those natural wants and natural needs are good. And that in fact, what they will do is offer us the opportunity to meet those needs on our own terms, in our own ways, and therefore sin against God. Again, the whole program here is not just to tempt you to make you eat. The program here was to make him sin. Now, how would taking and eating bread, turning stones into bread and eating it be a sin, except that God had sent him there to fast? God had not released him from his fast. He had not released him to do what he wanted. This wasn't God giving him instruction to make this food. And so Jesus says, you know what? No way. I'm not listening to you. I don't need to eat. Even though I'm hungry, I'm going to trust God's word. I'm going to follow his way. This goes back to the original conversation we had that when Satan fell and the angelic hordes went with them, they had planted the flag of, I'm going to do it my way. When they called humanity to come with them, we too planted our own flags and said, it's our way. This is how we're going to live life. Yes. And it's led us to addictions and wars and ridiculous evils all over the place. And here, when temptation comes, they're trying to get us to have a sense of like, hey, hey. Just, just meet your own need. You know, you, you don't need to go through God's methodology of getting married and doing this in order to have kids and, and have sex. No, 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 that doesn't, God's way is so antiquated. Meet your own need. Oh, no, no, you don't need to worry about, you know, whether that deal's up and up and everything. No, no, you're, you, can, you, can use that, you can use that deal to make sure that you get the money you really need. Who cares if it's shady? It's not that big of a deal. Don't, you don't have to pay those taxes. You know, there's all kinds of different temptations from not just yell and scream at your kid. It's far easier than instructing them and leading them forward. Temptation can come to us in so many ways because it comes out of our own desire. And this is what's going on. Jesus is being tempted saying, hey, what do you think? You're hungry. It's a good desire. It's a good need. Meet that need in your own way. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. So the devil moves to the second temptation. The second temptation picks up like this. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, so you're the son of God, huh? Well, throw yourself down. Because isn't it written, you quote scripture at me, I'll quote scripture at you. He will command his angels concerning you. And on the other hand, they're going to bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And what the temptation here is not so much like, oh, go commit suicide. The temptation is, hey, you know, if you're really him, you could reveal it. Everybody would see because God's promised you that you're not going you're, you're to get hurt if you throw yourself off this pinnacle. In other words, the consequences don't apply to you. Oh, gosh, how many times have we heard that one? Let's just be honest with ourselves. How often have we fallen into the same stupid traps, the same stupid sins over and over and over again? I know I do. And the same dumb temptation comes and I'm like, whoop, won't happen to me this time. Yeah, right. Though it's happened to me every other time the same way. I feel guilty about it. I got to confess it. Then I got to deal with it. No, it doesn't matter the temptation. The, the background of the temptation is always, well, you're unique. It won't happen to you. Just because we have an opioid epidemic doesn't mean it's going to be your problem. Hey, just because, every, I mean, how many of you took D.A.R.E. in elementary school? Anybody take D.A.R.E.? I took D.A.R.E. I remember me and my whole class standing there going, I promise to never do drugs. You know, the whole thing, every single one of those kids did drugs. I mean, all of us. There was some sense of like, because we were open to the idea, we're like, I promise never to do it. Hmm, what is that? Oh, that, hey, we learned all the consequences. And what did we all think? Oh, that'll never happen to me. 
How many people have had children out of wedlock because they were told, oh, that'll never happen to you? Go ahead. That's the one line that is constantly given out there to erase the consequences of what occurs to us, which is very plainly laid out, not just in the scriptures, but in statistics. And we go, nah. And that's the second aspect of temptation. And what Jesus actually says, he says, no, 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 no. You don't test God. His word is strong. It's true. You don't need to go ahead and test whether his word works or not. You just know it does. And so Jesus kind of shows us and reveals to us the second part of the weaponry of the temptation. It comes from a natural desire. It leads into this idea of you can ignore the consequences. And lastly, it's a call to be your own God. Notice how he continues. The devil then took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall not worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the temptation here is kind of subtle. But what he's telling him is like, look, you want authority? You want to save humanity from this mess? I'll just give them over to you. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. All you got to do is sin. And when you sin, you know what I'm going to do to you? I'm going to give you everything you need. This is the temptation of power. This is the temptation of success. This is the temptation to take the shortcut in life to the victory that you're looking for. This is the attempt to take shortcuts in life, to, to have that family, to have that value, to have that success, to have that money. Oh, it always is a shortcut and that shortcut always is through sin. Man, we can get a lot of things if we don't care about people, can't we? If you just don't care about cutting people down in your workplace, fire them for no reason at all because they're just in your way. I don't really like that guy. Move on. He's not doing what I need to do. If we don't care about humanity as human beings, if we're just about us, I want more money, then I can do this. I'm going to pick it and fight and do. No, we can do a lot of things that are good for us with shortcuts that are wrong. And that's the temptation to see the end and the means. And here Jesus says, hey, here's the end. You can have everything you're here for. All you got to do is bow down to me. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. It's not worth worshiping something else in order to become successful. It's not, worthy, it's not worth it giving up my soul for the sake of having something now. And Jesus here in a very real sense says, I'm going to separate myself from my desires. I'm going to separate myself from thinking that the consequences don't apply and separate myself from the ends because I want to focus on God. And this is not what we do as human beings, is it? Man, we're ready to take the ends now in any way we can get them. We're ready to fill our desires any way we can. We're ready to just simply ignore the consequences for the sake of what we want. And this is what they know. And this is how temptation leads quickly to sin. But I want to note a couple things in the text. As we work through this temptation, as you work through this section, you realize one thing, and we need to make this clear, and I need to make it absolutely clear because the church has got caught in a lie here. We think that temptation is sin. No, let me say it clearly. Temptation is not sin. Say that with me now. Temptation is not sin. Why do I say that? Because it's not. Notice Jesus here is tempted. And in Hebrews 4.15, it clarifies that we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Jesus was tempted in every respect in the way that we're tempted, but he never sinned. There's a separation between the desire to sleep around and doing it. There's a separation between desiring to lie and actually then lying. There's a separation from desiring to to lust and actually lusting. There's a separation between being tempted and actually acting in the temptation. This is a key critical thing that many people have stumbled upon when in the struggle over the, over the last decade and a half over the issues of same-sex attraction. It's one thing for somebody to feel tempted in an area. It's another thing for them to act in that area. Just like for any heterosexual person, it's one thing for you to be tempted in an area and you act upon it. Temptation is not sin. The desire is there. The action is different. We need to clarify this again because too often we think the actual temptation is the sin. But Jesus was tempted in every respect and every category of temptation, yet he never sinned. In these cases, it was something legitimate that was coming from within him. You see, the demons aren't in you tempting you. The the spirits aren't coming in you to tempt you. They're outside of you tempting you. It's inside of you that tempts you is your desires. James puts it this way. Each person is tempted and lured when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's like your own want, your own hunger, your own need, your own excitement, your longing for something sits out there dangling like a hook. Anybody, any fisherman in here, you know a lure is powerful. It's designed to snag whoever is, whatever fish is looking at it. It's supposed to attract them and then spark in them an enticement to chase it and take it. And so what he says is your desires can act like a lure, Now, the desire in and of itself isn't evil, but it's wrong when it starts to act like a lure. It starts to call you in because then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to what? Sin. Separation. Temptation and sin. The temptation is not sin, but it can be the pathway that sin is used. And so the demons don't have to literally go in you to tempt you. They just give you opportunities. They put things in your face. They put you in inconvenient opportunities. They get you stressed out. You get to the point where you're exhausted because you're so busy and you're not thinking. And the next thing you know, you're choosing to mood alter yourself by eating a whole bunch of food and gluttony or just sleeping too long and laziness and winding up in a situation where you sinned. You've missed out on the responsibilities of your family because you played video games far too long. And the situation here is that we are lured by our desires Though the desire in itself isn't wrong, it is wrong when it's hooked us and it leads us in action to the sin. So we need to understand that it comes from within. And so demons are just aligning with our own desires. They're working with us. And the other thing is that you're not alone. I want you to hear this. When it comes to temptation, Jesus is going through this because every human being goes through temptation. Why would Satan attack Jesus and think he's going to make it if Jesus is God? Because he's had a 100% success rate until he met Jesus. Do you realize that? There was not a human being that didn't fall into sin by temptation until he met Jesus. No wonder the Paul, when he's talking to the Corinthians, he says, guys, no temptation has overcome you. That's not what? Common to man. Having a conversation with one of my children who was telling me the other day, I'm the only person in our family who feels this way. I'm like, no, you're not. What you're going into is common to everybody. You are not the only human being here that's going through temptation or struggling in the temptation you're struggling in. You are not unique in your sin. Thank God. 
Be unique in your creativity. Don't be unique in sin. You can't be. Your temptations are common to humanity. And God is still faithful. You see, he loves us. He's faithful. He won't let us be tempted beyond our ability. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape, that you'll be able to endure it. And here Jesus had a way of escape. Every single time he had a way of escape because he knew the scriptures. In fact, what was fascinating is every verse that he quotes here is in within two chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. He had probably been meditating on that very section of Deuteronomy. And it was the very meditation, the very time he knew those, he was able to bring them up. Guys, how many of us thought scripture memorization was for children's ministry? Anybody around here, right? Because, man, my kids come home, they're like, I got this by verse, blah, 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 blah. And I love to ask them, well, what does it mean? And they're like, I don't know. It's one thing to memorize the scripture, another thing to know what it means. But it's amazing if you've been in children's ministry growing up, suddenly how fast those scriptures pop into your mind when you need them. Isn't it true? I didn't have the, I didn't have the scripture memory verses in children's ministry. So, I mean, all I knew was like, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I don't know how that helps me. You know, that's all I had. But my kids got all kinds of scripture memorized and one day it's going to give them help. It's going to give you help because what Jesus does is he unleashes the scriptures we'll see next week and it defends him, gives him the way out. It reminds him of the truth in the midst of the lie. It shows him the light in the middle of the darkness because every temptation is also connected to the second weapon, which is the weapon of deception. Deception is the second key piece to the entire work and weaponry of the enemy. And what's interesting about the weaponry of deception is that um, it's hard to detect. It is hard to detect deception. And we need to be careful about it. I see a mountain lion running in the forest. And he's running, running, running to deceive you, right? Just there's a new rhyme. Anyway. What do I mean by deception? So many people, when you hear stories about demons, they're like, oh yes, there was this person and he had this evil voice coming out of his mouth and he, there was this shadow in the corner with red eyes. Oh, it's so scary as a demon. Do you know demons don't normally show up like that? Here's how Paul warns the church about demons. He says, listen guys, you gotta be careful because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Oftentimes, the demons are more prone to show up as your best friend, your BFF, your good, brilliant, beautiful, angelic being. It's so interesting to me that several of the religious, giant religions that have come out of Christianity that we would, we would consider not Christianity were birthed because angels came and gave them information. In this case, demons would rather show themselves as good guiding spirits as helpful spirit friends who, if you will bring them into your life, they can lead you forward. Sometimes they don't even need to show up as spirits. They're just the people who aren't there telling you, you know, you need to go to hell. That's not their goal. Their goal is to go, dude, you have got great ideas. They're your best friend. They're right next to you going like, man, it'd be awesome. Let's get drunk this weekend. There's a great idea. Oh, man, smoking that pot makes you so relaxed, so smart. Dude, that, yeah, not paying your taxes, that's a good one. That'll save you money this year. Dude, going to that website, oh, that, uh, those girls want you. Woohoo! They're your frat boy hanging out with you to tell you stuff. You know what? They're not even endorsing you to come to church. What? Yeah, if they can make you an arrogant, stuck-up jerk who's self-righteous, they love you coming to church to learn how good you are and how powerful you are and how smart you are. They want you to go to school. They love to fill our heads with all kinds of stuff because their goal isn't to make you 
good. They don't care if you're good. Be part of the greatest movements in the world. Stop poverty. Get out there and get water to everybody. Adopt every child as long as you're perfectly self-righteous in your actions. They'll endorse it all. They're your best friend. That's how deceptive they are. And the point here is that we need to be careful because they are aimed at leading us astray. They want you to understand, they don't want you to understand God. They want you to sin and stay away from intimacy with the true and living God. As long as they can mix you up. In fact, they'll even teach you false doctrines. It goes on in the book of Timothy. Paul talking to his protege says, look, the spirit, God expressly says that in later times, some people are going to depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. They're going to call upon spirits into their lives to give them instruction and lead them to give them advice, whether it's through mediums, whether it's through uh, crystals or you name it. There's all kinds of stuff out there right now. Just go to Barnes & Noble. You've got entire sections on it. But then there's also this one called teachings of demons. You can, def you can actually translate that as doctrines of demons. Do you realize there are doctrines that are promoted in churches that have nothing to do with the Bible? They have nothing to do with historic Christianity. They're brand new doctrines that appeared out of nowhere that we're trying to correct everything that we've ever done before in, in a very simple encapsulation of, of the word love or tolerance. Guys, here's the thing. The cultural garb of the church may change. The way the building looks, the kind of clothing we wear, the kind of music we sing, the kind of seats we sit in, the kind of carpet we have, or the kind of stone we have, or whatever. If you've got gargoyles on the outside, or whether you've got stained glass, that has changed over the years. That has nothing to do with the content of the doctrines. That should not change. And see, the danger is we get bent out of shape about the, the, the shape of a room and the color of carpet, and we drink deep the doctrines that change our minds about who God is. I got a master's degree in divinity and a bachelor's degree in biblical studies. And in our culture, that pretty much means I don't know anything. And what frustrates me is more people get the theology from Facebook and Wikipedia than they do from the scriptures and from thousands of years of theologians who've studied all of these things. We don't even know our history anymore to know we're repeating doctrines that were laid out and defeated in the second century. We're repeating them in our current century. And the crazy, so we need to be aware of these things. We need to know these things because their goal is this. I'm afraid as the serpent deceived Eve, Paul says to his church by, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That there's a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. They want to get you away from that. And their church was struggling with He says, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one we received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. I mean, guys, how many times do we have to be told by everybody else, oh, Jesus would never. I, I look at, there's so many cultural outlets that are trying to tell us, well, this is what Jesus would have done. This is how Jesus would have done it. Jesus wouldn't have done this and Jesus wouldn't have done that. And I go like, have you read the same book I read? Because I don't see that. Like I heard this one, Jesus would never condemn anybody. I'm like, have you ever met the Pharisees? One simple read of the original writings of the eyewitnesses tells you that Jesus was hard on humanity, especially hard on those people who knew what Jesus was supposed to be all about. 
You got to let Jesus be Jesus. And the best documents we have are the eyewitness documents. Well, what about all the other ones the Bible didn't put in there? Yeah, they came about four centuries later. Written in the 200s, 300s, 400s, far later than stuff that was written in the 60s, the 50s, and maybe the 90s when it comes to John. But my point is this, guys. We oftentimes like to run to other things and people tell us what Jesus is like. He says, warning, warning. Don't go running accepting a Jesus that hasn't been proclaimed by the historical whole of the, of the scriptures. No. They love to do this. And so my thing is, how do, how, how, do you do, how do you deal with this? I can't point out all the contradictions. I can't point out all the counterfeits. There's just no way I can get you guys into that. We would be here for hours talking about every single heresy that's appeared over 2,000 years of the church. Even the word heresy, people are like, that's heresy to say heresy. There's no such thing as heresy. Well, they'll just throw that out. The best way that you can know whether something's a lie or not is to know the original. When they teach people to identify counterfeits, they don't show you every counterfeit that exists out there. That'd be impossible. How in the world would you go through all that information? No, what they teach you is to know what the feel of the actual is like, to examine and see the basic pieces that are there, to hold it up. Nowadays, to run it through the computer, you know, whatever. But the whole piece is to know it, to taste it, not taste it, don't taste money, that's bad, to, 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 to smell it, to see it, to feel it, to understand all the pieces that they put into the money that make it original. Do you know the smell of truth? Do you understand when it's coming through you? Do you understand, can you sense that it's right and it's pure and that it's counterintuitive to your own desires? Do you know the truth well enough that when the lie comes, you're like, something weird is going on. You're like, you're like a baloney meter, as Ike used to call it. It's like, something weird is happening. What is that smell? And that's what's going on. We need to be able to be connected to the original to understand it. But I can't read the Bible, man. It's just so boring and I don't get it and I try and I fall asleep and I don't have enough time. That's it. I'm a commuter and let me just, just write this app down right now, wherever you're at. The app is called Version. Just put it down, Version. Pick it up. Don't, don't, don't forget. Put a note on it. Put it on an alarm. Version. It is a Bible app. And what's beautiful about this Bible app is you open it up, it's got all the versions you could possibly want. It's got a King James version in there for all of you who love King James. And it reads it to you by an amazing guy, Orator, who reads it extremely well. So if you have trouble reading and you're like, I'm, I've got the NLT and I, I can't really read, my eyes are like tired and go, then let somebody read it to you. Did you know the first centuries until the Gutenberg Press, the church was read the scriptures you learned it through your ear by somebody who read it well. Sometimes I would advise you, open your Bible as they read it. And guess what it teaches you? How to read it well. You hear the cadence. You understand some of the emphasis. Don't just listen, but listen and read at the same time. It will help you and develop you. When you hear something, you're like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Press pause and take it in. But we need to be understanding the truth in order to see the deception. So important. Years ago, when I was, um, I was in, in ministry at my old church, I, I, would do a, I would join up with a serving team that we went over to Charter Grove. Anybody remember when Charter Grove was in town? We'd go across the street, go into Charter Grove, and talk to people in there, and we would play some worship music, and we'd tell them about the gospel. 
We're talking about how God loved them and how Jesus cared about them. And one, I can still remember this day was she sat in the corner far away from, from me. And when we were done explaining the gospel, this girl just kept crying and crying. We're like, what's going on? She's like, God would never forgive me. You don't know what I've done. He would never forgive me. God can't forgive me. Just like yelling at us that God wouldn't forgive her. There's so much lies involved in that deception, but it also included a sec- the third weapon, which is accusation. See, the accusation danger is that this is the one that, I, that I've seen affects people the most. There are three moves in accusation. First is the reminder of your guilt. Guilt is not a feeling. Guilt is a truth. You are guilty of something when you've done something wrong. And what they love to do is they love to lie to you about your future. Oh, you can do it. It's okay. You'll get away with it. You'll get away with it. And always tell you the truth about your past. Once you've done it, oh, you'll get away with it. No, you're never going to get away with it now. I'm going to make you remember it every day of your life. And they like to accuse you and remind you of your worst sins, of your horrible things, so that you feel ashamed. And that shame causes you to keep it hidden. It's why we feel like we got to look good, feel like we got to look right. In churches, we got to dress good and we can't talk about our sin. You're too ashamed. And so churches have become Pharisees because we're afraid of being real about what's gone on in our lives. And the guilt and the accusation builds, and we don't share anything because we're afraid. Guilt. Shame and fear motivate us to hide, disappear, and never grow. And they know it. Fastest way to keep you from growing in spiritual things, the fastest way to keep you from knowing God is to keep you in guilt of your sin over and ashamed that you've ever done it and afraid somebody might find out. And when those three things come together and accusation pounds you and pounds you, it'll lead you to one of, three, one of three things. You'll either run to temptation to get out of the feeling or you'll believe lies about yourself. But ultimately, once it's cleared away and you see all of these things, it will lead you to despair and it will lead you into depression. Because what are you going to do? You can't clean it up. You don't know where to go. And that's where I'm going to challenge you guys. Remember the gospel. Go back to what Jesus taught us. And John, he writes to the church, he says, if you confess your sins, if we confess our sins, he's faithful. Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You're willing to confess these things. You did this. Yes, I did. And they were wrong. God, I ask you to forgive me. I trust that Jesus Christ, you bore these sins on the cross for me. He's faithful to cleanse you and forgive you. God brings conviction into your life to call you to confess it. You don't come, people think the church is all about guilt and condemnation and blah, blah, blah. no, no, no. It's about God releasing you from guilt and condemnation. It's about God freeing you from the things that you feel guilty about. If you come in here thinking that we're judging you, it may be that the enemy is trying to make you think that way because there's so much shame that you're afraid of revealing. God already knows what you've done. He loves you anyway. Notice the roof didn't fall in on your head. He loves you. He wants you to release that guilt, release that shame, be free from the fear so that you can live and live for him. He's faithful and just to forgive our sins. In fact, two verses later, he'll say this, my little children, I'm writing these things so you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, oh, that's a reason for you to be guilty. No, no, you have an advocate the Father, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is standing there before God advocating on your behalf. He loves you so much that if he's died for your sins and you've accepted that and you sin, he's like, look, I got that. I'm standing before God, I'm arguing for you. 
If God is for you, the scripture says, who can be against you? If he is for you, that he would die on the cross for your sins. He loves you so much he's advocating for you now, even when you stumble and fail. That's why we need to have that knowledge that Jesus was willing to bear our wrath for us. He's willing to take our guilt and shame and sin upon himself. Why? So that we would be free. That even when the temptation comes and we fail or the lies happen, he's given us his presence and his spirit to disarm the enemy. We need to remember the gospel to get out of the accusation. And if we can do that, then you're going to face the final one, which is destruction. Destruction is the scariest one to me because I think we don't realize that we've been lied to about it. You see, destruction is this where we, it comes from this verse. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour right? I hope that's stuck in your head all day. But uh, to be a reminder that you and I should beware because he's ready to destroy you. If you're a Christian, don't think just because you've given your life to Jesus and now you're, you're growing in God and you know the scriptures and you're getting strong in temptation that life should feel great. You're like, woo, I'm, you know, I'm going to be blessed. Everything's going to be good. Guys, that's a lie. It's a lie. The most faithful man in the world was crucified on a cross. And today his name is used as a cuss word. And we think we're going to get out of it? No. It's a lie to assume that blessings flow and everything falls into perfect succession when we've come to Jesus and we're walking in him. No, we should expect that the enemy is going to bring an attempt destruction like persecution. That's what this text is actually speaking about. Peter writes about the church's persecution. He says, guys, you're in a fiery ordeal right now. Don't be surprised. Look, the devil is, is roaming around. He wants to devour you in the midst of your suffering. If you've been facing suffering because you've been walking with Christ, if you're facing suffering because you're denying your flesh and it's painful you're facing suffering because you're willing to stand for truth though the culture doesn't like it and they're yelling at you do not be devoured by it it could lead you to despair it could lead you to frustration there will be these things but God brings it to you to empower you to strengthen your character to make you a man of, or a woman of bravery to make you a man or woman of boldness to make you a man or woman of truth to make you a man or woman of love because love needs those things and truth needs those things. And he brings this into our lives that we would be stronger. Just ask Pastor Andrew Brunson, who is right now stuck in a jail cell in Turkey. 23 years he has, he has cared for the people of Turkey and been a minister there. Was arrested on trumped up charges that he was involved in the coup somehow. And we know it's because, and because the charges have been laid also, that he was converting Muslims to Christ. When we stand faithful, do we not think that there's going to be danger? Of course there is. And we ought to be praying for Pastor Andrew. We need to be praying for this man, that he would be released and set free. He's our brother. But we need to be also understanding that we need to stand firm. But I want to take another warning, because there's another way that we need to be careful. You see, some of us, we have a situation where we've given in to temptation at a point, we've given in to lies at a point that you've given a t an opportunity. Now, Ephesians 4.27, speaking about a list of different sins, tells Christians, give no opportunity to the devil. 
This word opportunity can also be mean a place. And what I believe it's talking about is if you've given into a particular sin long enough, it's easier for you to get back into that sin. You need to be especially on defense in that area of your life. If you've believed a certain set of lies long enough, you're legitimately going to be fooled by those lies easier and you'd be in defense against them. You've given opportunity a place for the enemy. But this is also clear that in some cases, it can lead further. You may be a baby Christian. You may have participated with demons in a way that you never meant to, but you did it. Maybe as a young Christian, you've invited a spirit to lead you as a spirit guide because you saw a medium or something like that. You knew you weren't supposed to. Maybe you were consulting astrology or whatever. You were getting engaged in these things. Guys, this is playing with the spiritual forces. You may have invited something into your life. Now, if you're not a Christian and you've done those things, you're in extreme danger. I want to ask you to be careful not to go there because you invite these beings into your life. They don't let go. And they can bring about physical ailments. You say, Greg, you're going way too far here. No, no, I'm not saying all physical ailments. I've already said this. Doctors are clear. But there are certain cases, guys, that doctors have no idea what they are. Look at some of these people in the scriptures who have been hunched over they re- the demon is cast out and they stand up. They're having seizures. The demon is cast out and the seizures go away. Now, I'm not saying all seizures or being hunched back or anything has anything to do with demons every single time. There are cases, though, that if you have an unexplained illness in your life and you have a past with witchcraft or a past with calling upon demons or spirits for good or otherwise, as they did in the ancient world, you may want to pray through this and talk through this with a pastor of the church. Because it may be associated with his destruction that he likes to bring upon humanity. And I just want to warn us that this is not something we mess with. And then I want to leave you with this. As a Christian, you cannot be possessed. Can I just make this clear? The Holy Spirit possesses you. He owns you. You're his. The devil cannot own you. He cannot possess you. But he can use his weaponry against you. So what do we do? What do we do? Yeah, panic, run. No. What do I want you to do? I want you to remember the sign, beware. There's a mountain lion prowling around out there. The best defense, as we will find out next week in detail, is a good offense. Your best offense is to press into Jesus Christ, the truth and prayer. It's the community being connected to one another with accountability, walking with him in love and truth. This is the best defense. I want to encourage you guys to press into him this week and to know him deeply because he has worked a great work to set us free on the cross and in his resurrection. Would you bow your heads with me? There's a big question that we've asked here at the church and that is simply the one question you need to solve. And all of this conversation about demons and spirits and all this stuff, you go like, well, how do you really know? And it's answered in this. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, what he teaches and what he's laid out is true. If he did not, then I'm a liar and you don't need to listen to me. But it's centered on that. And today, some of you know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You know that he has risen and you know that he has set us free and you have yet to give in your life over to him. I want to give you a chance to do that right now to enter into his kingdom and be set free from those that would want to control us with these weapons. 
and to be free from the wrath of God, the guilt, the shame, and the judgment because he was willing to bear your sins on the cross. If that's you today and you want to receive that, I want to give you a chance to do that right now. You're just saying to God, right where you're at, you say, God, I, I know I've been in rebellion against you and, and in that I've sinned. I ask that you'd forgive me. I trust you've placed that rebellion and sin on the cross and you've taken my shame. I ask that you'd come into my life and allow me to walk with you now without fear all the way into heaven. And I ask for your guidance now in Jesus' name.